the first thing we did was we sent a, an honorary membership to Eleanor, who, as I said, I'd already met. And um, next thing we know, we get a letter from Eleanor saying she's given gift memberships to five people or four people, Kevin Brownlow, Leonard Malton, Jim Karen, and Bart Williams. At which point I said, oh my God, I'd better put out a hell of a newsletter. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. It's the dog days of summer, and that makes it a great time to go to a movie. In this episode, we'll talk about a new DVD that shows what it was like to go to the movies in 1917, a new book that teaches you how to get into the movie biz in the 1910s, a convention devoted to the long career of a favorite movie comedian, and a book about the kind of theater where you would have seen that comedian in the 1960s. Hint, it involves your car. So remember to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And now, let's all go to the lobby and have ourselves a treat. Fritzi Kramer runs the Movie Silently blog, and she's also the latest one to put out a Kickstarter-backed release of A Rare Silent, a 1917 version of Robert Louis Stevenson's Kidnapped. That's Ben Modell's music for it playing in the background. This film doesn't star anyone you're likely to have heard of, so you might wonder why this film for DVD release. I spoke with Fritzi Kramer about why she runs a silent movie blog and why she chose this set of films for her first DVD. When I was 12, I decided I wanted to be a novelist. So um, I read all these advice books and they said that you should write every day. So, you know, I was 12. I took it very literally. <laughs> and I wrote like at least one longhand page in a big old notebook every day. And so this is kind of an extension of that where um, it's, it's kind of part of my pattern. It's, it's been that way for, you know, longer than I want to say. So, <laughs> yeah. But also um, I, I try to keep things mixed up because my whole goal is to kind of replicate the sort of freewheeling content of a fan magazine of the silent era. Because they kind of had everything, you know, they had paper dolls, they had recipes, they had fashion tips, and just all sorts of kind of off the wall stuff. And I wanted to reflect that and make it a little bit madcap. I liked where you, you were talking about, uh, you had a post about your first year as a silent film fan. It's okay that you're going to giggle occasionally, you know, you're still getting into it and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, like to, I like to tell them that everybody has to start somewhere because you can't be an expert until you become a beginner. And I think that's the big thing is that um, I, I try to keep my uh, my mind kind of in a beginner mode a little bit because I've been watching silent films, uh, oh gosh, for 
I'm going to say, well, since like 2001, I think. And so I've been doing it for quite some time, but I've, I try to kind of keep the problems that I had in mind and the adjustments I had to make so that I can tell them, you know, it's okay. Everyone feels this or a lot of people feel this way at first, especially if they get into them as an adult. So what was something that you found a problem early on that you've kind of gotten over? I think one of the biggest things was the concentration and the headache. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I get headaches at the drop of a hat. So like, the first one I rented from the video store from Blockbuster way back when was Sparrows. It was on VHS. It was very warped. So, and it had an organ score that was also warped. And so it, it just was like, I felt a little bit seasick afterwards. (laughs) And that was a difficult adjustment. And also just figuring out that there are different versions. There are some that are better than others. There are different companies. There are some better than others. And just finding the kind of weird little genres that I ended up getting into. Like what? Oh, like uh, the Russian emigres in Paris. Uh-huh. Um, their films are absolutely wonderful. And I also, I love trash. Just really trashy melodramas. <laughs> just love those. And I tend to um, go for the underdogs. So anything that's been ignored or everyone's like, oh, no, it's not good. I'm willing to at least give it a chance. Yeah, I, I noticed, uh, speaking of the Russian uh, stuff, I noticed that you, you're a big uh, Ivan Mushakin fan. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you live in a golden age of being able to see Mujikin. I mean, I'm sure much more than people in the 20s did if they weren't in France. Let me just ask you one more thing about your blog. What um, Do you have any idea who sees it? Have you met people who read it? And do you have a good back and forth with such people? Or have you met them at festivals, anything like that? Oh, I tend to, um, I live like in the middle of nowhere and I tend not to leave my mountaintop lair very often. <laughs> okay. Um, but I have, um, let's see, um, I went to the day of silence in San Francisco. Um, I've been to Cinecon a couple of times. Okay. Um, but yeah, um, usually most of it is through email or Skype or things like that. Yeah. And I've had a nice back and forth. Um, most of my readers are American, but I've had some really nice, um, emails from, um, I had one from, um, what was it? Tunisia. That was really nice. And um, uh, some from France, um, Russia, um, and um, Germany, Austria, you know, the usual, the usual suspects. And so um, it's kind of a blend. Um, I have some kids, which I love, you know, I think it's, I think it's great. I feel very maternal um, (laughs) to have young people reading and then you know there are some older older ones and then you know some professional some amateurs so I think I kind of have a cross-section but you know you can never be quite sure online right <laughs> uh, well let's talk about the uh, release that you shepherded not to make a David Shepherd pun there um, yeah. which is kidnapped from the mm-hmm. Robert Louis Stevenson book uh not the 1917 film of that, but it's not only kidnapped, it's a whole night at the movies. Um, so tell us about that. Well, um, what it is, is this producer, George Kleine, um, because of the first world war, he was cut off from the Italian films he had been distributing in America. 
So he got into business partnership with several studios, but the one in this case that we're talking about is Edison. And they would release these programs called the Conquest series. There were 12 of them released. And what they would include is a three to five reel feature and then several short films around it. Um, And it was supposed to be an open road of romance and learning. I think that was their tagline and that it was guaranteed censor proof (laughs) and (laughs) suitable for, um, oh, uh, right thing, uh, um, like propaganda for alt-right thinking Americans. (laughs) So, so, um, the library of Congress had all the pieces of the ninth conquest program. And cause at first I was initially only interested in kidnapped, but then when I saw they had everything, I was like, huh, I think that's a pretty good marketing angle. I know, um, for a while, Warner Brothers was doing these really nice sets that had a night at the movies where you had a cartoon and a newsreel and um, things like that. And it was really fun. But I don't think there's been another silent film release with the actual authentic. This is exactly what was put together for this program thing. Because normally it would have been different in different theaters, I assume. Uh, yeah. So this was kind of a special thing that they did it as a whole program and made it available. Right. It was like a, a seven reel package. And you also could order the pieces separately. I saw that on an ad and mix and match. But they encouraged theaters to have conquest nights where the family was supposed to come. Everything in it is kind of uh, family friendly, except there's a pantomime lion that eats people. Right. But <laughs> other than other than that, it's pretty um, it's pretty tame stuff. So you can see that it was intended for the family audience. It starts off with, I guess, what you call kind of a burlesque of a ancient Rome comedy. Um, right. Friends, Romans, and Leo. It's supposed to be Roman, but it's also, they talk in very jazzy sort of, they say, oh, Pa, have a heart. Or, you know, that's a 5K rock or things like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 And... It's yeah, a bit it's, of a fractured, was it fractured fairy tales or Aesop's fables or whatever on Bullwinkle? It's it's yeah. kind of on, on on that level. It's about this king who has borrowed too much money, so he's going to sell his daughter to the guy he borrowed money from. But then she falls in love with a the slave. They're going to feed him to the lion, but it turns out they worked in the same circus together. So <laughs> the, the lion eats everyone who's bad. The end. For, fun for the kids. For, fun for the whole family. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then we go to another um, kind of fairy tale thing, which is a version of Little Red Riding Hood, uh, done in a very interesting way. T- you tell me about that. Oh yes, it's a silhouette fairy tale, and most of us are familiar with like uh, Loda Reiniger's uh, puppet silhouettes, like the little shadow puppets. But these are live actors, and they do interesting things, like they hang frames on the wall to be the window. And um, it's it's Little Red Riding Hood on the more morbid side because grandma does get eaten permanently, which again, so I see a pattern here. And <laughs> um, but it's really fascinating and it really takes the tinting well, because uh, when we were discussing whether or not to tint, what really made me think that this program should be tinted because we don't know what the original tints were, was this particular film because it's 
in its gray state, it's really nothing to look at. But when you have some pinks and greens and things like that, it kind of pops. And I'm absolutely certain that's how it was meant to be released. So, you know. Yeah, no, I thought it was, it was quite stylish as it, as it came out. Uh, yes. And then, then there's two sort of edifying pieces or, you know, sort of, I guess you'd say general interest, they would have called it back in the day. Uh, a little travelogue of Provincetown. Uh, mm-hmm. Not not the Provincetown anyone knows now, but an actual sh- uh, fishing village of mm-hmm. those days. And then a, a little short film of uh, microbes, you know, both of which I think are kind of a reminder that, you know, so much of what, he, you know, we've all seen these things through TV and so mm-hmm. on, but they were brand new to people back then. You know, getting right. to actually see that you might have seen a picture of microbes in a magazine if you had the money for magazines. But this was something this is an exposure to a whole side of life that you'd only heard about up to that point. Right. And also, um, it kind of goes with the entire um, the whole concept behind the conquest program, which is education, because like Friends, Romans, and Leo is funny, and Little Red Riding Hood is is stylish and enjoyable, but these two are more on the education side of things. So I think it creates a nice balance. Right. So that part runs about a half hour, and then you've got uh, the feature, Kidnapped, mm-hmm. which is about an hour. So, I mean, that gives you a sense of just the overall shape of the program. It would have been about 90 minutes, which would be a pretty typical movie running time, you know, well into... Uh, modern times anyway, although now everything seems to be over two hours. Yeah. Um, The interesting thing about Kidnapped is that we see that they're a repertory company because players from the the Roman comedy at the beginning uh, return and kidnap, particularly Raymond McKee as David Balfour, the hero. Yes. And then also it's the same director, Alan Crosland, who went on to do Don Juan and the jazz singer. And so it's kind of fun to see him because... I love um, the beloved rogue that he made with John Barrymore and Conrad Fight, and so it's it, which is a medieval swashbucklerish comedy weird thing, and it's it's really fun to see him kind of you know as because I this is the earliest confirmed uh, feature that I can find he directed, so it really is showing him at the beginning. Yeah, and it, and it's you know entirely. Uh, watchable and and decent 1917 version uh, you know clearly put together some some nice visual touches makes good mm-hmm. use of its sets and landscape of all and all of that uh, so you know not a not a bad job for young Alan there uh, not as as lavish certainly as something like the beloved rogue but a nice nice version of the movie um, one person I was particularly struck by in it. Uh, was I think his name's Robert Kane, who plays yes. Alan Breck, who's sort of the anti-hero of it, uh, kind of the Errol Flynn character, you would say in some ways, but you know has a bit of scoundrel to him as well because well he's a rebel, he's a rebel against King George. You know I thought he was he was quite engaging. I mean he has the most colorful part. Um, I looked up his credits. He's in a couple of Demille films. He's in Male and Female. Do you know anything about him? You know, I don't know that much about him, but he is the reason I wanted to release the film because um, I, I do recipes, on vintage celebrity recipes on my site. I did one for Francis X. Bushman that was profoundly bizarre and involved mushrooms and tapioca. And I had all <laughs> – it was weird. And I had all this tapioca. 
And so I was looking for vintage celebrity recipes that use tapioca, please. <laughs> and so I found in this 1915 cookbook something from Robert Kane that was wine and tapioca. I'm like, okay, you people, stop, stop. But <laughs> I looked him up and I saw Kidnapped and it's one of my favorite books. So I was like, does it still exist? And I looked it up and then I was like, can I see it? And <laughs> I asked and they said, oh yeah, there are no res access restrictions. And then my, you know, my little wheels started turning and that's how I ended up kind of in, in this mess, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> All thanks to tapioca. Well, yeah, yes. let's talk about uh, the technical side of this, which is that you are one of the latest people to have done what a number of people have done now, which is get their hands on a public domain film, or in this case, a set of films, and uh, arrange for a very nice release, of the, which is uh, both the money to produce it is raised via and the audience is found via uh, Kickstarter and mm -hmm. then also promoting it on various uh, places that people talk about silent film, including Nitrateville. So yeah, tell me, tell me about that process and why you wanted to take that on. Well, I kind of wanted to do it ever since I saw, um, well, you know, Ben Modell, Edward DeLurso have have been doing these releases. And I kept thinking that I wanted to do some because um, Ben Modell tends to focus on comedy. That's like his absolute specialty. And Edward LaRusso has all these um, Marion Davies films. And so I'm like, okay, there has to be like an angle I can hit as well that no one else is interested in. And so I, it, this, it had been in the back of my mind for years. It's just, I was looking for the right something. And um, so I was able to contact the Library of Congress and they were really helpful and, um, you know, getting me the best material and things like that. And fortunately, um, I had been corresponding um, with an editor and director in England, Christopher Bird, and he had worked for Photoplay Productions. So he has experience with like real tinting, physical tinting of films and editing. He oversaw the restoration of the cat and the canary. So he was able to advise me on the technical aspects and Ben Modell was very helpful. He explained like the whole Kickstarter process, you know, like where to get my films duplicated and the best way to market it and just, you know, little details that he had from experience. But I told everyone that I'm looking forward to the second project because so much of the stress was from the unknown. Sure. Like, like, um, because the library of Congress delivered the high resolution scans to us. And then, um, Chris went ahead and edited them, tinted them, did all that good stuff. Um, got everything running at the right speed. Ben did his score. And then uh, I authored the disc, which was nerve wracking. And because my, my great nightmare was that it was like not going to play for anyone but me. And so I had a bunch of testers test out the disc before I sent it to the duplicator. And um, then they delivered me four cubic feet of silent films. <laughs> And I spent a week stuffing and mailing and stuffing and mailing and stamps.com saved my sanity. This is not sponsored. And, um, and everyone seems happy. Thank heaven. 
Yeah, so how many did you sell in the end? Um, I think almost exactly 300. Okay. Yeah. And now so, there's, there's more chances to get it because uh, it's available on Amazon? It's available on Amazon for purchase. Um, I went ahead. Uh, the Kickstarter version is kind of a special edition with a booklet, a clear case, you know, little fancy touches. And the one available through Amazon is going to be just the disc. But it's kind of incentive to get people encouraged to donate to the Kickstarter while it's going on um, to you know, give a little something special because the donors made the release possible at all. So I wanted to kind of give them just a little bit of extra. One of the things that's always kind of made me sad is that people aren't interested in average films. <laughs> like they want spectacularly bad or spectacularly good, but they don't want the normal John and Joan Q public movies. And this is by offering the complete program. It's a way to kind of like the averageness is a draw because you can say you can experience it as it was. And I actually had someone write in and say that they, they watched it with their family and pretended they were in 1917. And that rather pleased me. I was very happy to hear that. So do you have any idea what the next one would be? Is there a favorite that you have your eye on or I do. I do. I have, I have um, one that I have my eye on, and we're just kind of looking at the logistics and seeing what's what. But it's another Edison. So, uh, because that's the other draw of the program is that relatively few films from late in the Edison Studios lifespan are available. So, this is another. This is a nice way to kind of get those out as well. Fritzi Kramer's DVD of Kidnapped and the Complete 1917 Film Program is available now at Amazon. I'll have her trailer for it and all the links at nitrateville.com. This DVD of a 1917 film program is one kind of replica of cinema from another era. A different kind is the new book How to Film Moving Pictures in the 1910s, which was put together and offered via Kickstarter by Darren Nemeth, microphone manufacturer, collector, and Nitrateville member. It reproduces documents from the early days of cinema, complete with original typography and photos. I spoke with him about it, starting with the centerpiece of the book, a 1914 guide to making your own movies from Ford's Camera Shop in Denver, Colorado. Well, I found a, a collection of booklets and uh, pamphlets on eBay, and um, they're all way back when, over 100 years ago, they were ordered by a guy in Panama while the Panama Canal was being built. And apparently, he wanted to get into motion pictures, either as an exhibitor or a maker. And um, the, the Ford's catalog was found with about maybe eight or nine different uh, mail-order items, including um, the Powers Projector catalog, pamphlets by Eberhard Schneider, which is a forgotten pioneer in uh, motion picture technology, and a few other items. I've always wanted to uh, 
publish it and do something with it, you know, because that stuff is extremely rare, especially going that far back. And it really doesn't make much sense for me having it here, not being able to have other people look at it and see it. Well, it's just a very evocative piece of the very early days of cinema when it really could be a hobby that spun into a business and even uh, a corporate, you know, a large corporation after a certain point, the Wild West days of, of movies then. And so it's basically just a guide to all the different technical aspects of, of getting involved with motion picture production. Yep, everything you need to know. And uh, there's even a floor plan suggesting how to set up a, a dark room. And um, there's also formulas, um, how to tint, what kind of chemicals used to tint and to tone motion picture film, what kind of uh, tripods you need. And Do you know anything about uh, Ford's camera shop or the guy behind it? Nope, just that uh, he ran it. And that's just about it. They were in business at least until the 40s. But try to do research on Ford from yeah. 1915, <laughs> and you come up with automobile stuff. So it's nearly impossible unless I go to Colorado um, to find anything more about him. Okay. And then uh, you filled out the book um, with various other pieces of, you know, I guess you kind of call them ephemera from that time. Uh, tell me about some of the others. My, my favorite part is at the back of the book where I have over 40 frames from lost films from the silent era, ranging anything from serials to dramas and um, newsreels, one-reelers, features, and other stuff I have in the book, uh, a price guide from the Big House, which was a place in New York. It was called the Auburn Film Company, and it has a big price list of um, everything you need to buy to start a movie theater. Yeah, and it really is everything from the bulbs to tickets. Uh, you know, I'm looking at here. Asbestos covered wire. That's a good thing to have in a movie theater in the uh, days of nitrate film. Yep. <laughs> Um, movie theaters were just only starting to be built and there's still a lot of storefront theaters and a lot of times a projection booth would be a, a, just a small booth in back of a store and um, some of those were no more than six foot by six foot from front to back and to left to right and uh, you got a big projector in there smoking away and the only thing you have is a chimney on the top which would exhaust to outside and then there would be grills on the um, near the top so the projectionists could breathe. And uh, it was that kind of working condition that brought about the, um, the trade unions for projectionists. You mentioned Eberhard Schneider, uh, and it seems like that's someone that you're particularly interested in as kind of a an early technical film pioneer. Tell me about him. Well, he was from Germany and came here as an immigrant. He, he was in, into designing and making projectors when he was in Germany. And um, he came over here and did the same thing, and he had many patents. At the time of his death, he had designed 50 inventions, and I think 38 were patented, with uh, 12 still pending at the time of his death. But he uh, invented everything from uh, some kind of early sound camera to um, just anything technical to do with cameras and projectors. He had his own rewinder, and he had his own... Um, film waxer, which would uh, repair damaged film. So just one of those guys who sort of looked at the business as it was going along and saw ways to 
improve it mechanically here and there and in kind of small but cumulatively important ways it sounds like i guess he did pretty well for himself because he was in manhattan and uh he operated some of the earliest theaters there or he operated the projection booth but he was a really important guy in the early days and nobody really knows much about him because everything associated with him is so rare and then there's a, an essay in here, a 1912 piece called Adventures of the Moving Picture Man, which I thought was pretty funny. It's mainly an excuse to get in every juicy story that this guy could tell about the early days of cinema, several of them uh, ending in death for somebody. But uh, uh, where'd you find that? I got that on eBay. It was just part of my collection, and it fit in with the rest of the book. And so I added it, and it's pretty rare, and the photographs are... are very rare and one of them shows an accidental 3d camera they uh they shot film two rows of film with from a camera with two lenses and uh they edit the film together and then one negative will go stay in the united states to be processed and the other negative will go to europe to the labs over there to get processed so what made you want to put all this stuff together you know, in this sort of replica form, which, like I say, is very evocative of the time. What, what was you thinking about who would be interested in this? Well, I saw people putting out DVDs like Ben Modell and a few others on Kickstarter. And I thought I'd give it a shot with the book. I already have one book out. And uh, I figured it would be much better to provide the primary documentation than just me writing a book with text. Plus, it's in the original language that they used to speak back then. So you're thinking about putting out more things like this volume? Oh, yeah. I've got, my next book is almost finished. It's about 90% done. And it's going to be Magician's Catalogs. Oh. And, and uh, what, how that ties in with motion pictures is the early uh, trick films and uh, comedians like Charlie Chaplin, who kind of did, every so often they would do sleight of hand. And um, it just ties in early cinema with... Uh, the influence from stage musicians and has tricks and uh, other stuff that were used in later used in movies, but it was commonplace with magicians. And it's going to be interesting because all the catalogs are extremely rare. One's from 1899 and uh, is pretty well, it's just full of everything that you would ever need if you were a magician. I think people will like it when it comes out. I'd work on it this summer, but it's best during the summer months for me just to get out of the house. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll finish it in the winter time. Darren Nemeth's How to Film Moving Pictures in the 1910s is available now directly from him. The link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Before we get to the next segment, I want to ask you to do something. And if you've listened to this podcast before, you can guess what it's going to be. Help others discover this podcast by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, logging in, and leaving us a rating and a review. That makes us more visible to people looking for other old movie podcasts and builds our audience, which means more people know about and buy stuff you like, which means more of it gets made. 
So please, do that today and help us all out. Thanks. Captain, Captain, iceberg, dead ahead. What a spot. He's got aching bones, an aching head, and an iceberg dead ahead. What you need is some Alka-Seltzer, Captain. You know what they always say. Yes, a Captain always goes down with his ship. Oh, no, sir. I mean about Alka-Seltzer. Relief is just a swallow away. Bless that relief-giving Alka-Seltzer. Buster Keaton had a long career before and after his peak filmmaking period of the 1920s, including TV appearances all through the 1950s and 60s. Exploring that career in all its dimensions is the purpose of the nonprofit International Buster Keaton Society, known as the Damfinos for short, and its annual convention, whose 24th edition will be held October 5th and 6th in Muskegon, Michigan, on the shores of Lake Michigan across from Milwaukee. Patricia Elliott Tobias, founder and president emerita of the Damfinos, told me how it came to be. Because a cake didn't turn out. <laughs> okay. Um, I was researching a book on Keaton in 1992. It got close to Keaton's birthday, and I had just been to Film Forum. I'd done a two- or three-month Keaton festival in New York, which is where I was living. And so I was really into Keaton, and I had this idea for a book. And uh, so it got close to his birthday, and I, I had a friend who had gone to a lot of the films with me. And I said, you know what, let's have a birthday party for Buster, because, you know, his birthday's coming up. And she said, okay, great. And I said, I'll make a cake in the shape of his hat. That should be easy, even for a non-baker like me. You know, it's flat, it's round, it looks like a cake. Okay, I can do that. Well, it was a complete disaster. I didn't wait until it had cooled off to put the icing on. I couldn't figure out how to do the brim on the hat. It was a mess. And so I contacted her and said, the cake didn't turn out. How about if we start a club? <laughs> she said, okay. Now, I'd already met Eleanor Keaton, and I had asked her if there was an organization I could join. And she said, no, there's a few people in Norway, but that's about it. And I was like, okay. So I knew there wasn't something already. And um, we started it semi-seriously. We sat down the first day, which was October 4th, 1992, Buster's birthday. And um, we wrote down a list of, of goals and we created some sort of serious and semi-serious uh, constitution bylaws kinds of things, you know, including if we ever have members who can't get along, they have to have seltzer bottles at 10 paces, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And, uh, but some of them were things like, we'd like to see Buster on a stamp. We'd like to see films restored with good musical scores. Um, you know, just, uh, we'd like to have an award that we give to people who are doing art or research or whatever on Keaton. And um, pretty much all of that stuff has happened, not always because we intended it, not because we were involved, but some of it, yes. Um, at any rate, um, so the first thing we did was we sent a, an honorary membership to Eleanor, who, as I said, I'd already met. And um, next thing we know, we get uh, 
a letter from Eleanor saying she's given gift memberships. She's giving gift memberships to five people or four people, Kevin Brownlow, Leonard Malton, Jim Karen, and Bart Williams. Now, I didn't know who Jim Karen and Bart Williams were yet, but I certainly knew who Kevin Brownlow was, and I certainly knew who Leonard Malton was, at which point I said to Melody, my co-founder, oh, my God, I'd better put out a hell of a newsletter. And so we started doing a newsletter. After a couple years, uh, Kino put out its first restored Keaton set on VHS, and they agreed to put a card that I designed into every box. And suddenly overnight, we went from having about 25 members to having over 800. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and we also realized our dues were far too low. Um, so it was a process. And at that point, I started thinking about eventually becoming incorporated and becoming a nonprofit because I never perceived this as a fan club per se. There were just sort of a lot of connotations with fan clubs that I was trying to avoid. Um, and what I really wanted us to be doing, which we have done for 25 years now, um, going on 26, is uh, our newsletter is full of original research that has not been published in any book. Um, we have a lot of members who, you know, uh, go and research Keaton in their area. We have a member, a couple members in Canada who've done a lot of research on the rail rotter and where Keaton was. And they've talked to people who he met at the time and, you know, interesting things like that. And, and people who've gone back and found interviews and, um, John Bankston started, well, his whole, his whole, uh, finding locations for old movies thing started with a phone call to me because he had found a location near where he lived. And eventually it became a regular column for us. And the column turned into his first book. And now there's three. And I think he's got another one coming out soon. So that was kind of my goal is to have original research, to support research, to support anyone who was doing anything connected with Keaton and to have an event every year that was a mix of fun and seriousness. And that's what we've done. Now, the event, interestingly, is in Muskegon, Michigan, which is not the first place that comes to mind uh, for any, <laughs> any movie star, but there are reasons for that. Um, tell me how you wound up in Muskegon. Uh, well, there were several reasons for it. Um, one was... Uh, I wanted to do something around the time of Keaton's birthday. And I wanted that for two reasons. One is that it seemed appropriate. And the other is that I knew it would be off season for a lot of places. And therefore, it would be less expensive to put on an event. Um, in addition, Buster considered Muskegon his hometown. And I happened to know the area because I used to go to a town south of there uh, every year uh, in the summer. So I, I knew the area quite well, and that helped because it's hard to plan an event in a place you've never been. Right. And there were still people around who at that point remembered Buster or his brother or his sister who went to school there. Um, at this point, I don't think there's anybody left, but I could be wrong. We could hear from somebody this year. <laughs> the reason that it's his hometown is because 
it was where vaudeville pe- is one of the places that vaudeville people would go in the summer, right? Yes, his, his father co-founded an actor's colony that ultimately had, I think, 200 families of vaudevillians who spent the summers there. Because in those days, the theaters were often closed because there was no air conditioning. So they would do summer stock or they would do, you know, fairs or, you know, things outdoors. But, you know, they wouldn't go into the theaters. It was just too hot. Keaton had been on the road from the time he was born. Uh, they'd occasionally go spend some time with his his father's folks in Oklahoma, or they'd spend a few weeks around Christmas in New York and play the theaters there. And there was a boarding house in New York that they always stayed at. But other than that, they didn't have any, you know, every week they'd be someplace else. And so his they did some something in Muskegon. And his father and uh, one or two other vaudevillians said, this is a great place. And so it was the first stable place he ever had. And uh, he said that his, the, the stove in the house that they lived in was the first time his mother had ever learned to cook. <laughs> and he got to play baseball. They had, you know, the, the newspaper there had stories about how the, the actors team would play against the townies and, and, um, you know, toward the end of the summer, I believe they would try out their, you know, they would, they would work on their acts during the summer. And at the end, they would try it out for the locals before they went off on the road again. So it, it meant a great deal to him. It was, it was a, a really special place to him. And um, so it seemed appropriate that that's where we would, where we would go. Now, I should say it's not so much a film festival as it's really... I mean, it's part film festival, it's part scholarly conference. You call it a convention, which I guess takes in both of those. Uh, But a lot of it is really people presenting papers or in some way doing, you know, scholarly work. I I wouldn't say presenting papers because that has a little more of a, well, I hate to say boring, but but boring scholarly tone to it. Um, Original research. Okay. um, Usually presented in a very accessible way. You know, occasionally we'll get some academic who thinks they're at some scholarly conference and and people are very polite and they listen through it and then they roll their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me uh, about some of the things that are going to be at this year's conference, which is October 5th and 6th in Muskegon. We've got uh, Gabriella Oldham, who wrote Keaton's Silent Shorts, Beyond the Laughter, and she's doing a presentation on Natalie Talmadge and her sisters, Natalie being Buster's first wife. We're looking forward to that. And we usually have family members there. And uh, I'm sure that uh, that they will be particularly interested in what she's been able to come up with. Uh, we've got one of our Muskegon local members, who's been a member of the group almost from the beginning, uh, is uh, working with a filmmaker in Muskegon to do a documentary about Keaton in Muskegon. And so there's going to be a sneak preview of the documentary. The same fellow, Ron Pesh, uh, who is a Muskegon historian, um, he always does a walking tour of the Actors Colony site uh, for anybody who chooses to go on that. And uh, he always finds more stuff. The, the tour gets longer and longer every year. But, uh, you know, and it always winds up at the site of Jingle's Jungle, which was the, the home that they had, the original home 
fell into disrepair and was torn down years ago. But the people who lived there, the uh, the husband of the couple, actually uh, had been in the original Jingles Jungle. And there's still a retaining wall there that Joe and Myra signed uh, when they built the house. Hmm. So that's always sort of a high point of the tour. Uh, one of our board members, uh, David McLeod, he's re-examining three ages. And uh, one of the things he has done is uh, he has occasionally tracked down the foreign version and can do a comparison. Um, and he's the one who discovered the uh, foreign version of Steamboat Bill that wound up on uh, DVD a few years ago. Uh, we're going to have um, a taped interview with Kevin Brownlow. And he's going to discuss his work and his connection with Buster and Eleanor. Paul Garucki, who runs Cinemuseum, uh, always brings us uh, any rare Keaton or Keaton-related items that uh, that he's working on. And he finds all sorts of interesting stuff. So it's always a surprise. We never know what he's going to come up with. He's doing so much interesting Arbuckle research and and has so much material, so I'm sure that's that's got to be a big part of it, is talking about their relationship in some way. Um, that's sometimes part of it, but he has sometimes found alternate versions of things. He's done restorations of things. Um, we worked with him to get uh, uh, about a, a several-minute film that Keaton did uh, to be shown when he did the stage play of Martin in the, of the movies. And it's actually the only film that Keaton had complete control over after 1928. Huh. So I see you have, uh, you have uh, Gerald Potterton and David DeVolpe, who have to be some of the last people who've wor- who actually worked with him. Uh, there are a few. Um, we actually have an oral history project that we're working on. And uh, we're about to set up an interview with Bobby Shaw, who worked with Keaton on four different films. Um, but so, so, okay, so Gerald Potterton and David DeVolpe. I guess I should say, for the benefit of listeners, so he directed uh, The Rail Rotter, which is a famous National Film Board of Canada short. Uh, that's one of the last things Keaton did that really captures his, his you know, it pays homage to his classic silent film persona and then DeVolpe worked on uh, the documentary that was made at the same time Buster Keaton Rides Again yes and they attended our first convention in 1995 so we've been wanting to get them back and uh, in fact when they came the first time uh, we we use a a small theater in the art museum in Muskegon uh, for some of what we do and um the two of them and Eleanor were sitting, of course, in the middle of the theater watching it. It holds maybe a couple hundred people. And um, we had put together some outtakes that Jerry had been able to get for me um, from Buster Keaton Rides Again and had put a little musical score under it and were showing them. And they didn't realize it, but the three of them were sort of stage whispering back and forth. Oh, do you remember when this happened and that happened? And, <laughs> oh, my God, look at that. I'd forgotten all about that. And everybody was just completely riveted because everybody could hear them. <laughs> it was wonderful. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. I think that was the high point of our first convention was that moment when, you know, for like 20 minutes, the, the three of them are just kind of whispering back and forth. Right. 
terrific. I wish somebody had written down what they had to say, but <laughs> we, we didn't think to. It was so spontaneous. In addition to all of the, you know, talks and that kind of thing, um, we actually spend a fair amount of time in the community because Buster loved it so much. But we also have an auction, which helps raise funds to defray the cost of uh, the convention and other administrative expenses. And this year, we're actually going to have uh, some items that were owned by Buster. Um, and the way we end things is we go into this wonderful restored uh, movie palace. We see Buster on the big screen with live music from Dennis Scott uh, on a Barton Theater organ. And he's just wonderful. And uh, then we end the whole thing on the stage of the theater having a speakeasy. Do you think you'll ever run out of things to say about Buster Keaton? Even after 24 uh, conventions, there's still more? Oh, I don't think we will. Because we also put out a quarterly newsletter. And um, I've actually got kind of a funny story along the lines of what you just said. Um, After we put out about two newsletters, um, I was talking to my father on the phone. And my father said, do you think you can come up with enough material to last a year? (laughs) And here we are almost 26 years later, and we have so much material in the hopper, we occasionally have to get back to writers and say, we will get to it. We promise. We we will. We we haven't turned it down. It's just we've got so much stuff. Yeah. Well, now, and I was reading one of the newsletters that you sent me that I thought was uh, on a really interesting topic, and I I think proves how topics appear after time that didn't necessarily exist at one time, which was talking mm-hmm. about the aspect of uh, the general after all is a film about the Confederacy. Uh, and that's obviously very controversial right now. And I'd say it's about the least Confederate Confederate movie that uh, was ever made. I mean, there's really not much about it. It's certainly nothing ideological, but nevertheless, he is, he's a, uh, you know, Southern soldier, Johnny Reb. So there's occasional moments of other kinds of racial or out-of-date humor in them. How do you look at that in the present day? How do audiences take it? That's one of the things that I have considered part of our mission, although it's not written into our mission statement, which is to look at things objectively. You know, I think that, again, separates us from some fan club kinds of organizations where, you know, it's, this is my person and they never did anything wrong and (laughs) nothing about them can ever be said that was negative or, you know, whatever. Um, I think we need to look dispassionately sometimes at things. So we had, for example, a two part uh, article about stereotyping in Keaton films, but also putting it in context with other films of the day and showing that yes, there is some, but Buster was actually fairly progressive for his time. Um, That doesn't necessarily justify it. And if we show something like college, which has a whole blackface sequence, um, we try to introduce the film by saying, look, you guys need to be aware of this. This, you know, is something of the time, but be aware that the actual African-Americans in that sequence are presented as way smarter than Keaton attempting to be something he's not. He's trying to get a job, you know, and this is the only way you can figure out to get a job is to be an African-American waiter. Um, as far as the whole thing with the general uh, newsletter issue, 
that was something that came about uh, after the church uh, shooting in um, in Charleston, and we have a an active member who is absolutely brilliant uh, named David Pearson, and uh, David. Um, came to me and said, I think we need to address this. He said, I'm starting to notice online that there are people suggesting that Gone with the Wind should be withdrawn and never shown again. And there are a few people who have commented on the general as well, uh, because it's told from a Southern viewpoint. And um, he said, uh, let's talk, talk about how to approach this. So he and I talked it through, and I knew that he was a Civil War historian. So I said, let's really look at this. How does the general fit into the history of how the Civil War has been presented in film? And what was the history itself that creates the backdrop for all of this? And then I wrote a companion piece that had to do with how uh, we perceive films differently depending on our time period. So for film and television. So for example, um, and I don't think I used this example in the in the piece, but for example, I know some people who uh, during the the first feminist wave got very sort of disturbed by 1950s and 60s sitcoms because the wife was expected to be home and be a homemaker. So they were seeing it differently through that prism. And so I wrote a piece talking about how we perceive things differently over time, um, depending on what's happening in the world around us. Um, and we got some incredibly positive response um, from noted historians. We just really wanted to address it in, a, in an honest and dispassionate way. And, and the end result is we don't know how this film is going to be perceived in the future. I'm sure that in uh, the 1950s, people didn't really realize how the birth of a nation was going to be perceived in another 20, 30, 40 years. And I think that's part of being aware of film, is being aware that things change, attitudes change, um, and, and being real honest about it. So that's what we did. The 24th Buster Keaton Convention will be held October 5th and 6th in Muskegon, Michigan. We'll have links for it in the show post at nitrateville.com. Every era of film is a slice of history that's gone forever, except on film. And so much of what we know about early film history today comes from people who took the trouble to talk to the surviving figures of that era while they still could, so that we would understand forever how we got the classics of the past, like 
Tom Lasanti has been doing that for 1960s film. Not the Godard and Fellini 1960s, but the pop film culture of Elvis movies and beach parties and spy spoofs in his ninth and latest book, Talking 60s Drive-In Movies, from Bear Manor Media. Okay, there may not be a lot of deathless classics here, but it represents a time of goofy fun and teenage exuberance and innocence at the movies that would soon be gone forever. I started by asking Tom Lasanti how he defines drive-in movies. To me, in the 60s, they were more of the lower-budgeted budgeted movies that appealed to teenagers and young adults. You know, when the decade began, um, it, it, it was like beach, the beach party movies, and by the mid-60s, the Elvis Presley movies, I think, fell into that category, too, because the um, budgets became lower. And along with like the offshoots, uh, like the beach parties in the snow and the um, anything teenage related. And then when the 60s, when the beach party movies fell out of fa uh, favor um, by the, I guess, 66, 67, then you had like biker movies and hippie movies and uh, alienated youth movies. And to me, the movies that got young people into the drive-in where with one eye they could watch the screen and the other eye they could, you know, keep it on their, their date. Um, nothing too heavy, you know, you know, kids dancing on the beach, um, bikers, you know, roaring through town, beating up the townsfolk. Um, that to me was like a drive -in, uh, a, a typical drive-in movie where you didn't have to pay too much attention, um, but the, uh, there was a lot of action. There's a lot of interviews with female actresses who made a few of these movies, seemed to have had a good time doing it, and then they went on with their lives. It's not uh, not too many long careers here necessarily. Um, is that that been what you've mostly found talking to people about that era? Yeah, unfortunately, it was the time when if an actress hadn't really made it, quote unquote, by the age of thirty, they would you know they were told to find a husband and move along because you know, there's lots of 20-year-olds behind behind them, you know, to take over those bikini roles. Um, I mean, one of them, Mimsy Farmer, actually um, abandoned Hollywood. You know, she did a whole slew of drive-in movies, Hot Rods to Hell, uh, Riot on Sunset Strip, Devil's Angels, and then she went off to Europe and she became a star in Italy and in France after she hit it big with the uh, druggy movie More. Um, so if you didn't do something like that, or a lot of these actresses weren't even at the level of, for say, like a Carol Lindley or a Yvette Mimieu, where their careers went into the 70s and 80s with lots of TV. A lot of the, these actresses that were stuck in these bikini roles and drive-in movies, you know, by the time they were 30, and if they really, really haven't progressed to bit bigger and better roles, the careers really did dry up. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about some of the ones that, that you talked to. Um, Shelley Fabre, you know, is one of those, seems to me kind of a quintessential 1960s person and seemed to have been so for Elvis since she turned up three times in Elvis movies. Um, and that seems to be someone that you, you enjoyed talking to. Yes, she was fabulous. Um, I was in her office a number of years ago. Um, she you know, she did the Donna Reed show. 
she decided it was time to move on. Well, first she did Ride the Wild Surf, uh, a beach movie, and she was a blonde. And then she signed a deal, a three-picture deal with MGM. And she did uh, three three movies with Elvis. Uh, first was Girl Happy and then Spin Out. And then for United Artists, they did uh, Clam Bake. Um, she was like, Shelley Fabray was one of the few that went from TV star, movie star, back to TV star. And she had a super long career. You know, I think it, right through Coach um, when she did that series on ABC, but she even got a, she got a first Emmy nomination. So she stuck with it. And, um, but it was interesting about Shelley Fabre was because she got so identified with Elvis Presley movies by 68, 69, she was kind of rejected by teenagers at the time as being from that old fashioned Eisenhower years. I mean, Shelley Fabre, Sandra D, Troy Donahue, uh, Annette. Frankie and Annette, their career, their movie careers just stopped. Connie Stevens, because they were not cool. They weren't cool anymore. People wanted the biker. You know, they were looking at Peter Fonda now and Mimsy Farmer and Dennis Hopper. Those are the cool people. Uh, a Sandra D and a Shelley Fabre were not cool. They were like, you know, what your older brother and sister uh, who were watching. And Shelley, and she went unemployed. She said for at least two years. And then Brian Song, the t she got hired to play James Caan's wife in Brian Song. And that revitalized her career. To me, there's a real break in the late 60s for actors and actresses both, where a lot of the people who seemed like ideal movie material were suddenly way too square, you know? Yes. You, you, they, they didn't belong in a world of Al Pacino's and Dustin Hoffman's and people like that. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. And I feel like the, the only other time in hit in movie history that compares to that is like the transition from silence to sound where a lot of people were just suddenly out of step with the 1930s um but yes it's like people who were big in 66 were suddenly out of step by 68 or 69 and many of them their careers never did recover some of them you know like you say went to tv there's always a role on the love boat for you i suppose at that <laughs> point and uh, they were also hurt by too the the studio systems the studio system was collapsing. You know, by the, in the early part of the decade, Sandra D was on contract as you know Universal, um, Troy Donahue, Warner Brothers. So they had this protection. But once all those contracts stopped, and you know the studios started getting rid of contract players, and they all went freelance, that hurt them too because the the industry changed big time by the late sixties. Yeah, you didn't have anyone who already had you on salary, so they had to find something for you to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one that I thought was interesting, and it, you know, this is more in line with usual Nitrateville Radio uh, topics here. Uh, Bobby Shaw, who was famous for wearing a fur-lined bikini in some of the AIP yes. <laughs> films, but she worked with Buster Keaton and apparently was quite fond of him, and they were they were good friends there on the set. Um, I thought that was a really fun part of the book, reading about that. Yeah, she was naive, you know, teenager. She didn't even know even know who he was, and <laughs> she thought he was just a nice old guy. Was trying to help her, you know. He taught taught her everything he knew about comedy, and she felt a little ostracized. You know, a lot of the people. You know, when by the time she got into the beach movies, it was Pajama Party, and that was number four. So by then, the click started. You know, Frankie and Annette were the stars, and they stayed separate. Uh, the Beach Boys and the Beach Girls. A lot of them were real surfers and. Beach girls taken off the beach, so they had their own clique. 
Harvey Lembeck and his motorcycle gang, they had their clique. They kind of, he, Harvey Lembeck spe- specifically kept his guys and girls away from the beach movie people because he wanted the antagonism to show up on screen. So he kept them separate. So when she wandered in on pajama party, she said she didn't fit in anywhere. And, um, she would have lunch with Buster Keaton and his wife would bring him, you know, uh, his meal in, in the, his dressing room and she hung out with him and she said, she, and she learned a lot from him. And eventually after the beach movies ended, um, she, did, was in a comedy troupe with Rob Reiner, and now is a super successful uh, acting teacher. And, you know, she is under her uh, her married name, Bobby Chance, and um, she has one of the most successful acting schools in uh, Hollywood now. So she did well for herself. Yeah, interesting that it uh, kind of traces back to Keaton. Then you know that she she's teaching them a bit of what he taught her. Yeah, she also felt he was underused. Like when they did Beach Blanket Bingo, she. She thought, you know, all he, all he does is chase her around, and she felt like after they proved themselves in Pajama Party, she was a little disappointed that they didn't give them a little more to do in that movie, because um, he w- by then she knew he was an icon, and she felt that they just weren't using him the way that, that more, they should have used him more. And then, unfortunately, with Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, um, which would have gave him more, he got sick, and he was replaced by Benny Rubin in the movie. One of the areas that I that was fun just to read about is 60 spy spoofs. I mean, none of them are really very good, but they were, to me, they were such a part of the background. I mean, there was bond, but if you're, you know, six years old or eight years old, even more than that, the spoofs are what you really relate to. And so it's, you know, fun reading about, you know, the Dr. Goldfoot and the bikini machines and the, uh, the Matt Helm things and, and all of that. Yeah, the um, Matt Helm, uh, had, he had his sleigh girls, um, and Jan Watson, who I interviewed in the book, was all in three, uh, three of the movies, um, and, you know, that was her career, basically. I mean, she did a lot of, she was one of those uh, actresses that just filled a bikini. You know, she was in, like, Dr. Goldfoot in the Bikini Machine. She did little, little bits here and there. there she did a Western called Alvarez Kelly where she's a saloon girl and her face is used to promote the movie and you would think she was the star and when you actually watch the movie she's on screen for like 10 seconds but they used her face and her bosom to to sell the movie and that's what happened with a lot of these girls they you know in promotional they became more famous for their publicity photos than they did for their actual time on screen but she loved i mean she she wound up uh, marrying Henry Levin the di- the director of one of them um, she loved Dean Martin. She said he was not a drunk. He he was on time. You know, he knew his lines. He was a total professional. Um, and um, there were some of the sleigh girls she didn't get along with. Um, but she but the the one she loved the best was Beverly Adams, who played Lovey Craves It, the secretary. Uh, and they became you know, very nice, good friends. Nice subtle name there. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the names in these movies are fun. But too, when that when when the Matt Helm movies died. Um, she did one or two things, and then you know she was married to Henry Levin for a while and had a kid and left show business. Yeah, well, you know it's funny. Just leafing through the book, so often you see girls in bikinis in groups of three, and I mean you you could go on quite a feminist rant about the commoditization of you know females on the hoof, basically you know right. be, being sold in in groups like that. 
Um, and to me, that's what was interesting reading about that book is just like, what a different time that is. I mean, the past is always a different time, but boy, that that's really seems striking today. Yeah, I mean, that was part of the job. Um, I interviewed Deanna Lund, who recently passed away, and she was on Land of the Giants, and she told me um, she was offered one of the roles in In Like Flint, probably the part I think Diane Bond got, who I interviewed in my book. But she said to me at that point, she said, um, uh, bikini roles are a vicious trap to get into. And she was kind of right, because if you would, you know, if you didn't do anything besides bikini roles, by the time you hit 30, there's pretty much nothing for you. So she turned down In Like Flint specifically because she, it was, that role was a bikini, the almost the entire movie when they're on the, on the island. Um, even though she said she would have got to work with James Coburn and it was a, a nice part and it had lines, she turned it down and then she got Land of the Giants. Um, so she kind of lucked out, but she she made a point about those bikini roles. You know, you didn't do anything beyond them. Um, you were on the drive-in and on people's, you know, you know, pictures of you on there, you know, on some boys. 13-year-old boy's wall. That's about it. Right. <laughs> yeah, now you mentioned Mimsy Farmer earlier, and it was interesting because she is kind of the contrast to the the other actresses talked about in the book because, as you said, she found eventually found kind of an art house career in Europe um, that continued for at least a good decade after her moment as, as just a perky, cute thing in Hollywood movies. Um, what do you think was the difference? I mean, was it just a matter of she was smart about pursuing that or? Oh, I, well, she's an anomaly because she started off like a Sandra D type. Warner Brothers, you know, she was in that movie Spencer's Mountain with which was start of the Waltons. And she was presented like, a, you know, another a younger Sandra D or Connie Stevens. And that petered out. And then she basically couldn't get. You know, she said the big directors weren't looking to hire her. And then American International Picture, well, came along. Um, first, Hot Rods to Hell was about a bunch of, like, I guess, juvenile delinquent kids in a, a doom buggy terrorizing a family. But they were the most clean cut looking juvenile delinquents, right. I think, <laughs> ever on the screen. And then came the more hardened AIP movies, you know, Riot in Sunset Strip, where she has a great LSD freakout scene and she does this wild dance. Um, Devil's Angels, where she's the um, the town's girl who leads the lets the people think she got raped by the bikers and starts this big um, a war between the bikers and the townspeople. But what's really good is the Wild Races, the one she did with Fabian, where it was more of an it was definitely for the drive-in. It was AIP. Daniel Holler was the director, but it was very artsy and it was done a little differently. And it got decent reviews, but it kind of died at the box office because, especially in the drive-in, because it wasn't what I think drive-in audiences were expecting. And, you know, they had uh, Fabian narrating the movie and all these different cuts, and you know, uh, it was just—I love it. I think it's it's great. And what happened with that was she went uh, after that movie. She went. Um, she knew Daniel Haller. He somebody recommended her for more. And at that point, she had given up on Hollywood. She was going to become a nurse and then called her. She went to Europe and got the part, cut her hair. And she was a little more free spirited. You know, she had a, that movie had a lot of nudity. A lot of these girls posed in bikinis, but wouldn't go beyond, wouldn't take their tops off. Mimsy was very free spirited. And that's probably why, too, she excelled in Europe, because she didn't mind taking her clothes off. 
Same thing like Carol Baker. I did a book on Pamela Tiffin who went to Italy and she wouldn't take her clothes off. And her European career stalled because in the early 70s, nudity was a big thing in Italy. So it was really, I think as the, unfortunately with actresses, some of them had to make it by accepting roles where their tops came off. <laughs> Do you see anything in uh, movies today that's, that is at all similar to this in terms of being for the teenage audience? I feel like sometimes it's so it's it's mostly horror films it's quite gruesome you know the sex comedy which continued into the 70s and 80s basically doesn't exist today nothing is as innocent as these films were but do you see any kind of parallels today with any part of what comes out um uh, not really i mean i know Walt disney a couple of years ago tried to like try to pump new life into the beach party movies they did something uh and try to ape it and i watched it and i wasn't very impressed uh it didn't there was the, i don't know who the two leads were but there were no frankie and annette they had a, just a, <laughs> they had a perfect emerson you know when you think about it two italians from the you know the east on the sands in in malibu who would think that would work because right. um, <laughs> they, they should have been like troy donahue and sandra d um not frankie and annette um but they just had something you know it was just an appeal about them that just threw the you know Got the people into the audience, uh, into the theaters, I mean. And um, also, you know, they, they sang well. They were clean cut, um, exactly what was wanted at the time. I think you're never going to find that period of the, that, the innocence, especially in the 60s, because it, it was right before everything changed in 66, 67. So it was like the last bastion of innocence. Tom Lasanti's Talking 60s Drive-In Movies, from Bear Manor Media, was published in 2017. I'll have a link for it in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Fritzi Kramer, Darren Nemeth, Patricia Elliott Tobias, and Tom Lasanti. Music is by Kevin McLeod. The kidnapped score excerpts were by Ben Modell. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And again, help us all out by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks. Thanks. <laughs>